Good evening. Uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Now, our text is going to be Mark chapter 8, but we're going to give a little, uh, uh, little background. And uh, your pastor sent me a text this afternoon. He said uh, he had about a five-minute outline. He said, if I'm lucky, I'll be able to stretch it to 10 minutes. I really need to keep these people here longer. And uh, for whatever reason, my name was the first that came to his mind. I'm not sure how to take that, but uh, in any event... You know, I've, I've preached here a number of times, and uh, in the summer times, either on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights, uh, we've held services over in the, uh, in the pavilion sometimes, and uh, well, I'm glad we're not out there tonight. It is, it is uh, a warm one, and for those of us uh, who have gotten used to the, the warm weather or the uh, cold weather in Connecticut, this, uh, this kind of heat is, uh, makes you melt. And so uh, Mark chapter 8 will be our text, but let's just flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 6, and I'm going to read a couple of verses and just make some comments, and the whole purpose is to sort of give you uh, historical context. You know, the Gospels do tell a story, and uh, I like uh, something the pastor said uh, early in the service, he talked about D-Day, and today is the 77th anniversary, and, and uh, he, he makes this statement. He says, well, of course, you know, the five beaches and, uh, in Normandy, and, you know, the U.S. hit some beaches, the U.K. hit some beaches. Like, we're all supposed to know this, and, and I think Americans of a certain age probably did know it, uh, but I don't think we do a very good job of, of teaching that history, and uh, there is... A lot of history in this book, and they're not just Bible stories. It's important that you understand, uh, particularly with the life of Christ, there's a, there's a flow to his ministry. It wasn't sort of willy-nilly, go this place, go that place. There was something going on, and so we go back here to Mark chapter 6. By the way, if I could say this, one more thing. Uh, I've been in Israel a number of times. In the modern country of Israel, they do a really good job teaching their people history, I mean, we talk about the Holocaust, and we say never again, but listen, those guys, they know their history, and they know the history, their Bible history, but, but even the more secular ones, maybe they don't know that as well, but they, they know their modern history, and they know who attacked them in 1948, and again in 1956, and again in 1967, and again in 1973, and again in 1982, and they know where they came from, and a lot of the people living in Israel uh, came from other Middle East countries, they came from North Africa, they came from Europe, and they'll tell you, I was running from the Holocaust, but, but God was good to me, and I landed in Israel, and they'll have elaborate stories of escape and all of that, and I, I remember I was in Israel uh, during one of their memorial days. And every station on the cable, uh, of, uh, on the cable television broadcasters uh, in the hotel where I was staying had something about their Memorial Day. And uh, the, the, uh, most of them were in Hebrew, and I didn't understand it, but a couple were in English. And I remember I just sat there fascinated, and I was in awe of these people, and I said to myself, you know... America has a wonderful history, and unfortunately, very few people know it. And the stories that we tell as a nation are important. And, and uh, 
Uh, I don't know. I'm so far off track, Pastor Shot. I apologize. I'm going to do better than you even thought. I'm going to keep these people here till what time we got. All right. But the, you know, we did have slavery. I mean, I get that. And, and there was a lot of injustice in America at different times. But that's not the totality of the United States. In fact, it's a, it's a very small part. And if that's all that you know, and if that's all that's being magnified, then you're not going to have a very uh, healthy view of your nation. And that's by design. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 setting up some context. Jesus had just said to his disciples, they had been ministering one place after another, and they were people. They were tired. You get tired just running and running and running. And Jesus said, we need to come apart and rest a while. And there's the old saying that's come from that, uh, come apart before you come apart. And so he said, come apart. And they went to what they thought would be an out-of-the-way place where they could relax for a little while. But the crowd found them and followed them. And verse 34 tells us, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were his sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so Jesus taught the people. They sat, they listened to him. And his disciples said, look, we're out of the way. We, we, we need to send these people away so they can go to the closest town and buy something to eat. And Jesus said, feed them. And what followed was the feeding of the 5,000. At the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, look at verse 44. It says, and they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. And straightway, that means immediately, right away, he, Jesus, constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go unto the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And so, again, a very well-known story in the gospel. After uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, he dismissed the people. He went into the mountain. His disciples uh, got in a, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he sent them to the other side. And while they were rowing towards the other side, and the Sea of Galilee is not a, a saltwater body of water. It is uh, uh, actually a, a large freshwater lake, but it's surrounded by mountains, and the winds can come down, and they could have uh, sudden storms, and that is apparently what happened here. And now the Bible says that they were toiling and rowing, and uh, they're working and working, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking on the water to, him, to them. And the Bible says that they cried out for fear. They thought it was a ghost. And, and there's a, kind of a lot to, uh, that goes into that. Did they think that they were dying and this ghost was coming to, to, to transport them to uh, uh, eternity? I mean, I, I don't really know what all of that means when it says that they thought he was a ghost. But Jesus told them, don't be afraid. It's I. And boy, the people, they were just uh, in the, the Bible says he came into the boat and, you know, the winds uh, stopped uh, roaring, the, the waters calmed. And uh, we come to verse 51 now of chapter 6, and it says, uh, And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wandered. But here's the thing. They wondered at what Jesus did. said, well, this is amazing that this guy 
calmed the seas and the, and the winds. But verse 52 says, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Now, if you know the feeding of the 5,000 story, there were only uh, five loaves and two fish, right? And, and we're not talking big fish. We're talking probably something like smelt or some, some small fish. And the loaves were not huge, what we would think of as loaves of bread. They're more like probably pita uh, round, uh, little pancake-sized uh, uh, loaves of bread. And so it's not a lot. And Jesus says, hey, the, the, the God that divided up, that took these, th- this small amount of food and fed 5,000 men plus women and children and had 12 baskets left over, he's able to calm the winds and the waves. The, the, the God of the food is the God of the storm. But the Bible says the disciples didn't think about that. They didn't make that connection because their heart was hardened. Chapter 8 now. And it is a very similar situation. A crowd has followed Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus is speaking. and He says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint in the way for divers of them came from far. And what follows now is the feeding of the 4,000, not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000. And there were... Uh, seven loaves and a few fish. The Bible doesn't give us a definitive number, but Jesus uh, fed the people. When they were done, they took up seven baskets full of food. And so we pick up now. This time, Jesus, uh, instead of sending disciples in a, in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, he goes with them. In verse 10, it says, And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha, And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them, and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they say unto him, 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? The title of the message this evening is Callous Christians. Callous Christians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray now that Uh, As we've read the scriptures, as we've tried to put the events into a historical context, I I pray that you would open our hearts. This is not a new passage of scripture. It's not an unusual passage of scripture. It's not the kind of thing that gets preached on rarely. It's probably the type of 
event that we've been taught since Sunday school, and many preachers have preached from this same text and same set of events. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would make it new. I pray that we would see it afresh and anew, and I pray that the Word of God would penetrate our hearts, that you would tenderize us, Lord. And I pray that if there's even one here that doesn't know you as Savior, that he or she would not leave this service without knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. And for those of us who need to draw closer to you and make our hearts right with you, I pray that uh, we would do so during this sermon and during this service. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you think of a group of Christians who followed Jesus faithfully, even in the face of personal threats and open hostility and mocking and accusations of wrongdoing? You probably think they're pretty good guys, right? And what would you think if these same Christians faithfully preached the Word of God? They were sent out by Jesus two by two. And again, they preached the Word of God, and they had power over demons, and, and they actually performed miracles and healed people. And of course, I'm talking about the apostles of Christ. You say, well, they're some of the greatest Christians who ever lived, and I would agree. And yet God makes it a point to tell us that even these great Christian men were prone to experience periods of hard-heartedness. And so in our text, Jesus has now just fed the 4,000, and shortly after this miraculous feeding, he encounters the Pharisees. In fact, in our text, it says the Pharisees and those from Herod, and then in Matthew's gospel tells this same story, and it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we have three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. The Pharisees were a religious group or sect uh, that taught a very strict adherence to the law, and good thing about the Pharisees is whenever God was silent, the Pharisees were really good at filling in the blanks. <clears throat> and, uh, and then you had the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And uh, that's a good way to remember that, by the way. But they, uh, they did not believe in the supernatural. In fact, not only did they not believe in the supernatural, and you say, what do you mean by that? Well, they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. But beyond that, uh, they didn't believe... Uh, in all of the Hebrew Scriptures, they, they held the law, which we would today know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they held that as authoritative, and everything else, the historical books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the, the uh, prophets, it's okay. I mean, there may be some value to it, but it's not authoritative in their way of thinking. That's why when Jesus deals with them about the resurrection, he goes back to Abraham to show them that even though they say they accept Genesis as authoritative, they don't really know the book. And, uh, and he dealt with them uh, out of that book. And then there were the Herodians, and they were more politically oriented, and uh, they were loyal to Herod and to the Roman Empire, which was uh, running what had been historically Israel at that particular time. And they saw the Roman Empire as the protector of their position. Now, these three groups uh, uh, many times quarreled with each other. And they had a very adversarial relationship. But they would set aside their differences and agree on a couple of things. One was 
uh, what they had in common was they used their positions as lords over the average Jewish person living there in historic Israel. Secondly, they all hated the threat that Jesus posed to their position uh, under the Roman Empire and under Herod, under Pontius Pilate. Uh, they, they felt like Jesus was going to come in and upset this whole thing, and they just couldn't have that. In fact, you think about it, they were not interested in knowing whether or not Jesus was the Messiah because if he were, that would mean they were out. And if they were out, they'd lose their house, they'd lose their, uh, you know, their, their big income and their wealth. And that was more important to them, even though they were supposedly leaders in Israel, that was more important to them than whether or not God had sent his Messiah among them. So Jesus describes the attitudes and the practices of these groups by comparing them to leaven. Now, you know what leaven is. There's a couple different leavening agents. Uh, most commonly, we would think of as yeast, but also sometimes baking powder can be a leavening agent. And uh, leaven is the fermenting agent that is found in wine or in dough that's used to make bread. It's what causes bread to rise. And the picture that Jesus draws here is very clear. Just as leaven will not cease its corrupting action until it has fermented the entire container, right, of whether, again, whether we're talking about dough or whether we are uh, talking about a, a flask of wine or something like that, uh, it will keep going until it is thoroughly fermented and thoroughly corrupted. In a similar way, when you accept the false doctrine, and it may just be a little thing, church. It may be you just let a little thing in the church that's not right, and before long, everything is corrupted. That's why you must stand against false doctrine. That doesn't mean you're ugly. It doesn't mean you're unkind. It doesn't mean, you know, you drive past uh, uh, the houses of people you don't like and throw eggs. That doesn't mean any of those things. But understand, you need to do right. And you need to preach what's right, and you need to protect sound Bible doctrine. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so Jesus warns them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Beware, in Matthew it says, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And his warning is really very straightforward. He's warning about corruption, false doctrine, alternate agendas that don't put the glory of God, number one, Christ not being preeminent, But the disciples think he's talking about bread. And they said, well, it's because we forgot to bring bread with us. That's why he's saying this. And Jesus identifies the cause of their misunderstanding as their hardness of heart. And, and really, if you think about it, it tells us just a, a couple of things about a hard heart. First, a hard heart clouds our understanding of spiritual truth. You ever just miss it spiritually? I'm a pastor. I miss it all the time. You know, I'll be reading something, and, uh, and, and then you go to church, and you hear someone else preach, and it could be a familiar passage that you've heard and, and read yourself dozens of times, and all of a sudden, the light comes on, and you think, man, why didn't I get that? Well, sometimes, it's not the only reason, but it could be a hard heart. The disciples, these men who walked with Christ on earth, they missed it. 
because they had a hard heart. A hard heart also causes us to forget about the works of God. They did not put together that the God who was performing miracles and feeding the people could also perform miracles that could calm the storm. They didn't put that together, and they, they forgot the works of God. And by the way, he had done many other miracles in their presence prior to, to all of this. But not only that, a hard heart thinks primarily of the physical, then the spiritual. We become very worldly in our focus when we have a hard heart. And even good Christians can become hard-hearted. I'm not talking about that person who sort of hit and skip in church, but I'm talking about the one who's here every time the doors are open. Even that one can become hard-hearted. None of us here, including the pastor and this preacher, are immune to having a hard heart. The only way to combat a hard heart is we must constantly compare our heart to God's heart. You say, well, if I do that, I'm always going to come up short. That's true. But it's a discipline that we have to engage in in order to make changes where necessary. In other words, what I'm saying to you is we must align our heart with God's heart. You say, what does that even mean to align my heart with God's? Well, we, we usually say the heart is the seat of the emotions. It's, a, it's where uh, compassion lies. It's where our sense of of uh, feelings, uh, you know, emotionally speaking, lie. Well, we ought to feel about things the way Christ does. But that doesn't come natural to us. I think you understand that. And so if we're going to align our heart with God's, we have to do a few things. You say, how can I do that? First, by restoring the sense of wonder to our view of God. We need to restore a sense of wonder to our view of God. Look at verse 15. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Skip down to verse 19. Jesus is now asking, and he said, When I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said seven. Jesus warned his disciples, don't adopt the attitude of the Pharisees. And the response of the disciples was to think of bread because he had used the word leaven. And of course, we already looked at the verses twice there. The Bible says they had a hard heart. And their hard hearts dimmed their view of the one whom they were following. You, you got to understand, these guys are with Jesus all the time, and they're watching miracle after miracle. Think about, here's a guy who can, and I say a guy because Jesus is, is coming in, a, in the form of a man. I mean, he's more than just a man. We understand that. I don't mean it to be irreverent or disrespectful. But you've got this man walking around from village to village, and he's preaching and people are clamoring for him. They're just trying to grab hold of him. You know the story of the woman who grabbed hold of the hem of his garment so she could be healed. And Jesus is walking up to people and he's making mud and rubbing it on their eyes. And suddenly they, blind people can see and he's, he's touching their ears and they can hear. And he's, he, he's uh, making the lame to walk. He's causing the dumb to speak. And, and all of these different things are happening. These people are seeing this. And yet, Jesus takes a small bit of food, 
multiplies it to feed thousands. And they've been around Christ so much that their response is, don't you let the holy become common. How many of you are a different, I'm not saying how many are perfect, but how many of you are different? You'd say, Jesus Christ, you don't have to put your hands up, by the way, but Jesus Christ made a difference in my life. I'm not what I ought to be, but praise the Lord, I'm not what I was. When's the last time you said, oh, Lord, I was... (laughs) I was headed in a bad place. I was going down a dark alley and you saved me. When is the last time you thanked God for your salvation? When is the last time you said, I don't know how he did it, but I am not who I used to be. And thank God I'm not. There ought to be a wonder to our Christianity. Don't you grow tired of serving Jesus Christ? Don't you grow so comfortable with salvation that you forget what it is that Jesus did for you? We need a sense of wonder. It's interesting, when Jesus came walking on the water to his disciples and they were fearful, suddenly their wonder briefly was restored. They're like, wow, who is this guy? Well, he's God, veiled in human flesh. That's who he is. And yet, whatever glimmer of wonder sort of flickered in their hearts, it evaporated very quickly. It went out. And when Jesus understood that the disciples thought he was preoccupied with physical needs, Jesus asked them almost dumbfoundedly, Have ye your heart yet hardened? And that little word yet is important. It means, are you still hard-hearted? Still? After everything you've seen, do you still have a hard heart? If the disciples can lose sight of who Jesus was, don't you think it's likely that you and I can do the same? We live in a secular world that's built on the shifting and uncertain foundation of humanism in which man is elevated and God is diminished And to man is attributed a spark of divinity, but to God is attributed all the constraints of human frailty. And we live our lives in that type of a world. And it doesn't take long to allow attitudes to seep in that shouldn't be there. And we don't have a tender heart before God. And we don't take time to consider who he is and what he has done for us. You know, one of the joys of observing little ones, you know, newborns, and, and uh, as they're growing up into uh, young children is they, they, they discover things, right? They discover their hands and they look at them for a while and they discover their tongue and the next thing you know, they're sticking their tongue out at everybody and they learn to crawl and they look back at you while they're doing it and before long, they're up and walking and taking off and getting into everything and the house is not safe, And it's as an adult, when you're watching your children go through all those stages, you can see in their eyes, wow, you know, they're excited about that.
And it happened so long ago in our lives, and you know, we look back and say, was I ever that way? Probably. But we don't remember it. And someone comes to church, and that person, like a newborn babe, gets saved, and man, they're excited. They're on fire for the Lord. They can't wait. They're going out and telling everybody. And you may look at them and say, was I ever like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think we were all like that at one time. Say, what happened? We just got old spiritually. When we reach adulthood, we've typically experienced so much that there's nothing, nothing left in life that inspires us with a, a feeling of fascination. The agnostic journalist and social critic H.L. Mencken once said, the problem with life is not that it's a tragedy, but that it's a bore. And I think, what a shame that he would think such a thing. As Christians, we have the joy of knowing Christ personally. And the more we learn about him, the more we realize how little we really know and how much more there is to know. By the way, you'll never plumb the depths of the Bible. You've never come to the place where you understand everything. Years and years of serving Christ and the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi could still write that I may know him. Oh, the pursuit of knowing Christ. Again, Paul had it right in Romans eleven thirty three 33 when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He said, I can search and study. I can pray and I can preach. And I'll never get to the bottom of knowing Christ. We have a God that we will never outgrow. But when we fail to contemplate the mystery and the wonder of the one who's infinitely greater than we are, then we take an active role in hardening our own hearts. And so we need to align our hearts with God's first by restoring a sense of wonder to our view of God. Secondly, by seeking truth from the person of God. Look at verse 15. We need to seek out the truth. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? <clears throat> Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? By the way, that do you not remember? Wasn't that long ago that I fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and walked on the water, calmed the storm? Don't you remember? To say that the disciples misunderstood what Jesus said about taking heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, to say that they misunderstood it would be an understatement. Once again, the culprit in this misunderstanding was their hard heart. And uh, let me just say this, the search for truth is an exhaustive exercise. Truth is the basis for our attitudes, or at least what we perceive to be the truth, what we understand as truth is the basis for our attitudes about our origin, morality, life, death, destiny. That's why when you, as the Bible describes, you take the truth of God away and you substitute it and you 
you put forward the philosophies of men in place of the truth of God, it has an effect, a very deleterious, a very negative effect on morality and uh, uh, life and, and our view of eternity. If you want to understand why we are where we are as a nation, it is because the truth has been intentionally hidden. We prefer to be regaled with the comfortable lie than to be told the uncomfortable truth. Closely related to the concept of truth is the concept of trust. Inherently, we know, don't trust those who are lying to you. I can't tell you probably been a little while, the last time I actually sat down and watched an entire news program. Now, I didn't say I haven't watched the news. I catch bits and pieces. But I, I, just to sit down, I used to, when I was younger, sit down and watch an entire half-hour news program. You say, why not? Why don't you do it? Because I just get tired of people lying to me. There was, several years ago, a survey conducted of a group of teenagers in Canada and the question was asked, what do you wish for most in your life? And the number one response was, somebody I can trust. And are we really surprised? Every day we are bombarded with advertisements. If you buy my product, you will be successful, good-looking, happy, wealthy, right? And I'm just here to tell you, it's not true. I tried. And... Uh, the, uh, we get public service announcements. Today, not surprisingly, uh, you know, government is not known and politicians are not known for exactly being honest and truthful. But today, uh, there is one side of the equation politically that has the endorsement of uh, all the big tech companies and uh, something that deviates from orthodoxy. Boy, you talk about a secular heresy. Something that deviates from secular orthodoxy will get you burned at the stake, figuratively speaking. And, uh, you know, these guys working for the, the uh, social media companies are all too willing to strike that first match. Our news media report stories that are so biased in favor of their political agenda while they try to pass it off as unbiased truth and impartial that honestly I don't know how that they cannot be embarrassed. But we're used to it, aren't we? And we treat every source of information with suspicion. And I think that's a pretty good stance, by the way. But let me just say this. This is truth. This is the Word of God. Don't, see, there's a reason I talked um, just a moment ago about the physical and the spiritual. Don't treat this like any other book. Don't treat this with suspicion. You may not understand everything you read. You may not understand everything I say or everything the pastor says or a guest, other visiting pastors. You may not understand everything they say from the pulpit. But as God is my witness, I'm not lying to you. And I have your best interest at heart. I truly do. 
We trust those who we believe. And I, I think I can say to you that Christ has earned your trust. You're not going to look for truth from a source that you do not trust. While I'm, while I'm at this, I might as well just continue with my fit that I'm throwing. The uh, truth is truth. There are not, hear me now, there are not multiple versions of the truth. There is the truth. There is not your truth and my truth. You ever hear people? Well, my truth, I, I, was, I heard it, my favorite people, the journalists and the media types, I heard a, a woman on TV talk about, well, that's my truth. What she's really saying is, I won't tell you the truth, so I'm gonna tell you my fairy tale, and I want you to believe me. If you have to put a possessive in front of the truth, the agenda is not the truth. And while I'm on that subject, the same is true for justice. We hear about social justice. We hear a lot about social. We hear way too much about social justice. But we hear about racial justice. We hear about economic justice. And you can put just about any other qualifier. When you start qualifying justice, understand the agenda is not justice. We are in favor of justice. We serve a just God, and he has commanded us to do justice. Nowhere do I find in the Bible, though, where it says do economic justice, do social justice, do racial justice, do ethnic justice justice, do, do gender studies justice, and do feminist uh, justice, and do this type of justice, and that type of justice. No, listen, either it's right or it's wrong, and if it's right, it is just. You don't have to qualify it, because when you're qualifying it, what you're really doing is you're saying, I'm trying to pass off injustice for justice. When we lose sight of the truth, we lose sight of our ability to discern because the secret to discernment is first and foremost the identification of the truth. By nature, truth is exclusive. If we could sort of trace an outline around the truth, everything that falls outside of that, no matter how close it comes to the line, is still false. By definition, it must be. You say, where can I find the truth? Well, Jesus said, you found it in a person. He claimed that truth was his exclusive domain. He was the word. And the Bible says, thy word is truth. But Jesus himself in John chapter 14, verse 6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You may not have considered it, but when Jesus was standing trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate looked at him and said, what is the truth? <laughs> Jesus didn't answer, but he could have said, Pilate, you're looking at him. And so, we need to seek out the truth, and we need to seek it from the one whose very nature is truth because he will not lie to us. We have a God that we can trust. And so if we're going to align our hearts with God's heart, we need to restore our sense of wonder to our view of God, and we need to seek truth from the person of God. But, second, or, but lastly, 
We need to choose to receive the love of God. Do you understand that, that God loves the world, but not everybody loves God back? I think you get that, right? You ever get the impression that God's love bounces off of some people? We need to make a decision to receive God's love. Look at verse 18. Having ears, or excuse me, having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not, and do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, seven. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Now, my first point about the wonder of God dealt with who God is. My, my second point about the truth uh, dealt with what God does. He is the truth, but his actions flow from the fact that he is the truth. This last point, though, deals with why God does what he does. Love, by the way, is not the basis for our salvation. The sacrifice of Christ is the basis for our salvation. His resurrection, the Bible says, he was raised again for our justification. So his, the, the gospel message is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid for our sins, and he rose again <clears throat> uh, three days later. That is the basis for our salvation. But you say, well, why do we always talk about love? Because love is the motivation. So there's a lot of things you'll do for love that you won't do for any other reason. And uh, when Jesus asked his disciples to remember the miracles of the feedings, he was impressing upon them not only the fact that he is greater than the physical circumstances, but he was calling to their remembrance the totality of the events. What, what did he say before he fed them. I have compassion on these people. They've been with me a long time. They're going to go away hungry. Jesus loved them. Before he performed the what, he had a why, and the why was compassion on the multitude. Jesus does what he does because he loves us. Now, I understand in our modern society that word love is so overused and so misused that we're uh, entirely ignorant of the meaning. Our concept of love is so shallow and so self-serving and so, uh, frankly, lustful and, and self-gratifying as to almost be useless as a word. But there is truly a love of God that is uh, worth receiving. And by the way, worth emulating. The uh, British author G.K. Chesterton, who, by the way, he died in 1936, and listen to this quote. He wrote about love many years ago. He said, quote, they have invented a new phrase that is a black and white contradiction in two words, free love, as if a lover had been or ever could be free. It is the nature of love to bind itself, and the institution of marriage merely paid the average man the compliment of taking him at his word, unquote. There's a lot in there. You probably ought to... Uh, get with me later and write that quote down and just start pulling it apart and thinking about it. But love motivates us to act. Love motivates us to do what we ought to do. A 
As Christians, we're not immune to the damaging effects of the secular concept of love. We get very selfish and, well, you know, I didn't get my way. I'm mad. And then we start using love as a bargaining chip and withholding it from certain people. And not just a spouse, but it could be someone at work. And, well, I don't like that person. I'm not going to treat him or her with kindness. Listen, that's not Christian. We experience hurts, sometimes at the hands of those who say they love us. But the answer is not to allow our hearts to become calloused. The answer is to look to Christ and to look at his demonstration of love. You know, I, um, I used to be in the Navy. I've given this illustration before, but when I was in the Navy, I worked in the engine room on submarines, and there were steam pipes running here, there, and the other place, and it got quite hot back there. And they had these valves, and you're always changing lineups of these different systems, and so you got to open certain valves and shut certain valves, and you're running around the engine room doing things. And, boy, it was so hot, those valves were right there on the... Uh, connected to these steam pipes. And they had a little sort of rubbery plastic that covered the hand wheels, but it was hot. And you would move those hand wheels and run over to the next place and shut that valve and run over to the next place and open the next one. And you're doing all this. And just the use of your hands combined with that heat coming through the steam valves makes your hands really calloused. And you don't even think about it. The calluses are building up, and after a while, you're just running here, there, and the other place. It doesn't hurt. doesn't bother you. You don't even think about it. But then we would come back into port, and we would do a maintenance period and an upkeep for a while, and then maybe a month or six weeks, and we go back out to sea. And all of a sudden, you know, you start running around the engine room doing what you were doing previously, and boy, that's kind of hot. You feel it. You say, what happened? Well, the calluses were not there anymore the second time. Can I tell you something? As Christians, we need to pull the calluses off our hearts. We need to be sensitive again to the love of Christ. We need to think about Jesus and His love for us, and we need to reflect that love back to others, as well as back to God, by the way. God's love is sacrificial. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus said, Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We don't use that word propitiation very much, but it's the idea of the satisfaction. Jesus satisfied God's righteous demands. He was the ransom payment for sin. God's love is committed. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And as great as God's love is, we must make a choice, though, to accept it. Even Christians need to consider the love of God and say, you know what? God does love me, and I'm going to love others. When we realize that God's love is directed at us personally, honestly, if you would just get a hold of that, I I don't think we can help but change. And our first response to God's love must be to love Him back. 1 John 4.19 tells us we love Him because He first loved us. And the second response is to love others. 1 John 4.11 tells us, Beloved, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, we're in a church, and and I'm looking out on a group of people who who I love and respect. And uh, inside the church 
are people that claim to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And if we are receiving the love of God, then it ought to show in the church. The church should not, even when there are differences of opinion, and, you know, we're human. We do disagree sometimes. But even in those times, the love of God should be evident. It should be on our tongues and in our hearts. Sometimes people ask, how does this business of loving others work? There's a lot of people out there that aren't very lovable, and I would agree with that. There's also a lot of people that I don't know. How can I show the love of Christ to those I don't know? Let me tell you a story. Before I moved to Connecticut, I was still in Bible college, and I met your pastor, and Diane and I came up here. We were newly married, and uh, we didn't have any children of our own yet, and we met uh, Kristen, Laura, and uh, Jessica. And Jessica was, uh, Kristen and Laura were little girls. Jessica was just a baby at the time, and we moved up here, and uh, boy, right away, little Jessica captured our hearts. Again, we were foolish. We didn't have kids of our own. We didn't know what a pain in the neck they could be. And so, uh, the pa- and by the way, the pastor and, and Sonny were more than happy to get her out of their house. Yeah, take her! <laughs> and, uh, but by the way, his, his daughters were, were wonderful kids when they were little. I mean, Keith, Kristen was really nice. I, you probably don't believe that, but it was true. <laughs> Things change as people get older. And so... <laughs> and so, uh, like a lot of little girls, Chris, uh, uh, Jessica liked baby dolls. And so I remember one year, I don't remember if it's Christmas or birthday, Diane got her a little stroller for her baby dolls. Oh, my goodness, she's running, putting the baby doll in the stroller and pushing it around. And you guys lived in the little duplex there on Doman. And uh, I remember for her third birthday, we gave her a baby doll that came with curlers and hair breadths and a little toy hair dryer. And, and uh, I remember I came over to the house uh, shortly thereafter, and here comes Jessica with her little baby doll, and she sits it right in my lap, and then she starts putting all the little accessories in my lap. So I'm talking to the pastor, and I start rolling the you know, curlers in this little girl's hair, or this baby doll's hair, and then I'm putting barrettes in there, and the pastor is just taking shots at my masculinity. Oh, <laughs> He is like, and he's just, he's wisecracking and, oh, you put the hair, you put the barrettes in that baby doll's hair better than any pastor I know. Oh, 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 you know, oh, aren't you a comedian? So anyway, uh, based on those gifts that we were giving and the inordinate amount of time I spent putting curlers and barrettes in a little baby doll's hair, you would think that I loved baby dolls. By the way, God gave me three boys and no girls Amen. And, um, but I don't. But at that time, not having any kids, <laughs> we fell in love with a little girl who loved baby dolls. You don't have to know everybody to love them, but God loves them. Jesus couldn't be here in human form today, but he loves you, and he wanted me to tell you that. It may have been a long time since someone did something for you out of a heart of love, but Jesus wanted me to do that today on his behalf. Love often generates emotional feelings, but let me just say this. Don't confuse the feeling with 
what love really is. You don't have to generate the emotional feelings of love in order for people to know that you love them. You just need to love God, and his love will shine through you to others. But when our hearts are not aligned with God's heart, then our love grows cold and our hearts grow harder. I think we understand from history, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, that the apostles were great men. And yet, Jesus had to reprimand them for their hardness of heart. And as I look out this evening at what I believe to be some wonderful people, I have to ask, do I see anybody out here with a hard heart? All of us face a profane world that doesn't honor the things of God, and that cannot help but affect us sometimes. I know that there are attitudes that I have harbored that are not worthy of the name of Christ. There are words that have passed these lips that are not worthy of a Christian. And it's just a product of life. But when was the last time your heart leaped at the wonder of God? Jesus is an endless source of wonder. When was the last time you considered Christ's exclusive claims to the truth? By the way, you don't ever have to apologize for Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by you. never have to apologize for that. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. Nobody was excluded from that. Whether someone gets saved or not, they'll raise arguments like, well, what about the people who never heard about Jesus? I don't know about them, but I know about you. You've heard about Jesus. What are you going to do with the knowledge that you now have? See, it's always a sidestep. But as the source of truth, Christ is worthy of our trust. And is Christ trying to tell you something that you've not understood because you're too earthly-minded? Ask God to open your heart and to help you understand and to apply his truth to your life. The wonder of God, if you really are looking for wonders, is that he loves us. Do you love him back? Has his love made a difference in your life? See, if we, and I'm convinced of this, we just don't take the time we need to reflect on God's love. Because if we do, his love penetrates even the hardest of hearts. If you don't know Christ in a personal way, and I know it's a Sunday night, but if you don't know Christ in a personal way as your Savior, then you don't have a relationship with God because that only comes through Jesus, his son. And you're missing the wonder of his majesty and the trust that comes from Christ being the truth and being honest and the love that surpasses all understanding and explanation. And you need to be saved before you leave the service. And the good news is that you can be. But saved or not... You can have a tender heart before God. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be calloused. It doesn't have to be cold. Christ can do a work in your heart and to align it with his. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would just take the, the message that I preached this evening 
And I, I pray that uh, the wow factor would return to our Christianity. And I pray that we would trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.